Thank you. You may be seated. Is that what you say? Hey, go ahead and turn to John 9. We're going to spend our time there this morning. It's a story I'm sure all of you have heard before. The majority of you have heard plenty of sermons on it, I'm sure. So we'll see how this one's any different. But hopefully the Lord's going to work. And, and I think that the Lord really has a, a heart to see transformation in all of us. A heart to see us not be blind, but be able to see. And I really think that that's going to happen this morning for all of us. Regardless of where we're at in our own relationship with God, if we've been serving God for years or days or minutes or seconds, I think that the Lord will open our eyes to a whole bunch of new things today. And so we're going to talk through this. Um, as you're turning there, I, I do want to share, you know, I was on vacation for, we got back about 10 days ago. We were gone to, new, to Vermont, to New Hampshire for two weeks. So that was a great time. My wife is from Vermont. I also have to mention my wife had a birthday on Friday. And she is very beautiful. She's not here this morning. She's staying home with the kids, but she's very beautiful, and that is all I'm authorized to say. I said some other things last night. She said, you don't need to say <laughs> anything else. <laughs> so, so with that said, we'll see what I say later on, but for right now, I'm going to leave it at that. But we had such a good time in Vermont, seeing family, seeing friends, seeing people that we haven't seen for so long. And a lot of that time was built around the table, that, that time of re reconnection was we sat down, we ate with family, we ate with friends who are family, and we got to know, know each other again. But it wasn't really like getting to know each other, but it was more of a, just a reconnection. It was a family thing. We didn't have to get to know anything about the past, but it was, even if we hadn't seen them for years, it was just an automatic, hey, you're here, what's been going on in, you know, in, the, <laughs> in your recent life? And then talking about the good times, talking about all of the good things that have happened, showing our kids off to one another, because our we, last time we saw each other, none of, none of us had kids. And so it, it was all this kind of stuff, and it was really great time. It was 90 degrees in Vermont. We went up there thinking it would be cooler, but it was 90 degrees and then 90% humidity, which was terrible. I forget how much I love the dry weather. And I got back and it was 80 degrees, but it was dry here and it just felt perfect. But 90 degrees up there was death. And so, so we took up hoodies there, you know, because we thought it was going to be chilly. We took jeans and everything and then it was just hot the whole time. So they, 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 get a, they get a heat wave once or twice every summer, and so we just ended up being there on the heat wave. But in, in saying all of that, one thing I want to announce, too, is that we're going to be kicking off life groups again here in September, the week of September 12th, and they're going to look a little bit different than they, they looked before. What we're going to do with life groups now is we're, we're, we're kind of getting rid of the old format of having worship and teaching kind of being the core of it and and really keeping a simple atmosphere of meeting around the table we're calling them dinner parties and so all it is is a chance to sit together and connect while eating some good food talking to one another not having any sort of 
schedule to the evening and letting the Holy Spirit move um, for ministry, for talking about Jesus, for doing worship, all of that kind of stuff. It's also going to be a good time for, or a good avenue for evangelism. To be able to invite somebody who, who will come over and eat dinner, but may not come over to be a part of a life group that's, you know, that has a teaching time and all this other stuff. So it's, it's going to be something brand new that we're doing. And we're really excited about it. We have several groups already who are committed to starting these things. And, and, and they're not formal. You know, you don't have to worry about wearing a suit and tie or anything like that to these things. So don't worry about that. Each group, each group will have its own sort of theme to it, its own sort of, um, how they, how they want to do things. If they want to have people bring things as a Pollock style or make the main dish and everyone bring side dishes, all that kind of stuff. And it's just going to be the, the size limits are just going to be whatever the house can hold. And so we'll have some, um, RSVP type of scheduling type of things that you can go in and, and eat with people and, um, and schedule things that way. Um, so, so, so that's going to be great. So look forward to that. We'll talk more about that here as, as it gets closer. It's, it's a few weeks away before we really begin and really jump into that, but it's going to be good. All right. So John nine, let's start with the first, first verse as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. So the he here is Jesus. As Jesus is walking by, he sees this man. He finds this man. And throughout this whole chapter, we, we're going to see three themes really pop out to us. We're going to see the theme of lost and found. We're going to see the theme of light and darkness. And then we're also going to see the theme of blind and seeing. And each one of those has, has its own sort of reality to it, its own sort of if you will, personality, that's what's metaphorically speaking, its own sort of thing, uniqueness about them. They all tie together, but they're all, they all operate in a little bit different ways. And so we're starting now with Jesus finding this man, finding this man who was blind from birth, who was just sitting there begging, and Jesus comes upon him. And Jesus could have just kept on walking, right? There, there, there was nothing... There was nothing that, that physically stopped Jesus from, from stopping and seeing this man to, to engage with him. He could have kept on walking, passed him by, going on doing whatever, whatever he was doing. But instead, he took the time to stop. He took the time to, to sit with this man. He took the time to talk to him. And it, it's amazing. You know, we think about this theme that we have coming to Jesus and you know, we get this idea in our, in our heads about us finding the Lord. And when I was younger, there used to be a lot of this stuff about, have you found Jesus? You know, people talking like that, evangelists talking like that. And really, if it was up to me, if, if I needed to find Jesus, I don't think I would have ever found him. Because I can't find anything. And my wife knows that well. She knows that if, if she asked me to find something... There's a good 80% chance I'm coming back empty-handed. When, when, uh, when we were, when we were younger, when we, our first daughter, when she was a baby, you know, we, we have two kids, and so we had this big diaper bag, right? And finding anything in this diaper bag was impossible. <laughs> Everything was just thrown in there. And, I mean, it was impossible for me, and, and I know that, Megan would, whenever Megan would ask me to find something in that bag, 
It, it was it was always added pressure, and it was kind of it, it was earlier on in our relationship and earlier on in our marriage, and so I would get stressed out. She'd say, "Go get, go get." There's oftentimes, you know, when she's asking me to get something from the diaper bag, she's under the gun because she has a wild baby, you know, that she has to deal with, and so that's added pressure to it. And so, I, and so this one time, she was asking me to get this stuff, this butt paste, Boudreaux's butt paste. Anyone ever ever use that? It stuff's like magic. It helps with diaper rashes. And you need it. Every single time you change a diaper, you need Rujo's butt paste. And so she had my daughter down and wrangling her. And obviously she couldn't get up and get something from the diaper bag. And so she said, babe, can you go get the butt paste for me? And then all of a sudden, it's just like fear in my heart. It's like, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try. And, and, you know, I, I put on a good face. Like, yeah, yeah, I'll get it. Yeah. But walking up to it, I know that I'm, I'm not going to find this thing. And so I start digging through this bag, right? And diaper bags have all kinds of pockets everywhere. And then they have like extra pockets that aren't attached to the bag. And then this accordion thing that pops out that has all kinds of pockets there too. And I'm looking and, I, and then I know she's behind me. And I know she's getting angry, which is, which is my heart rate is going up, at, you know, as, as it's happening. And, 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 and I get to this point of where I have to just give up. I just, you know, I'm looking through things frantically, sweat, just pouring down. And I have to say, I can't, I can't. And I have to pick up the bag and I take it to her. And then she opens it up. And then all of a sudden, there's this pocket that wasn't there 10 seconds earlier, right? And it's like in Chronicles of Narnia where, where that wardrobe just chooses to open at random times and she gets it. And she opens up that pocket and some Narnia snow flies out and she grabs the butt paste. And, and she holds it up and she's mad. She says, it's right here. And then she, you know, she, she does what she does. And then I grab the bag. I look, the pocket's gone. And I go and put it back. And so, true story. And all that to say is that it's hard to find things, right? Going back to my original point. It's hard. If it was up to us to find Jesus, how successful do you think we would be? How many of you would have been able to find him? Because, you know, we think we may have been able to, but because of the blindness in our eyes, the, it's, it's, it's physically impossible for me to find something in a diaper bag, right? And so it's the same thing. It's physically impossible for me to find Jesus without Jesus first finding me. And so Jesus is always chasing after us. Jesus is always coming and finding us and picking us up in our, in our, in our pains, in our hurts, in our sins, and in our troubles. And he does the same thing for this man. And as they find this man, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the disciples at this time have this, this kind of distorted idea of how the Lord moves and how sin works and how, how the realities interplay. The Pharisees will come in later with the exact same idea. What did this man do? He obviously have sinned to be blind. From birth. It's either you or your parents. 
And Jesus subverts that idea. And he says, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, so there is no sin, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then we read that last part, and that kind of kicks in our own misconceptions about God. It, it kicks in our own ideas that may not be right in thinking that, well, if there is no sin involved, then God must have just cursed this man with blindness just so that this moment with Jesus could occur to see the healing happen. And some translations will add in their own words. Usually you can tell them because they're italics. And the NASB here adds in, it was so. It was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. NIV says it happened because the works of God could be displayed in him. So that kind of feeds into this idea of God being this sort of mean character that doesn't really care about people and destined this man to live the majority of his life blind just for this moment and just so that it could be recorded. And oftentimes in our own heads, we kind of think this way, right? We kind of think of God as being this God of punishment, this God who is always chasing after us and just ready, ready to catch us on that one thing we did. And then that also feeds into an understanding of if we've done so much and walked away from the Lord, then God doesn't want anything to do with us anymore. So why should I return? Why should I reach out to him? When in fact the opposite is true. But it's this whole idea of being lost and found. This lost mindset. When we're lost, it feels more comfortable to be lost. But being found is where our true identity is. Being lost is the fake stuff. Being found is the real stuff. But yet we, we, we let it work in our, in our heads and, and we let it hurt our hearts and, and, and we, we get to the point where we want to choose to be lost. It happens over and over again. And this man here was sitting there. He was lost. He didn't really have an understanding of Jesus as the Messiah. But Jesus found him. And begin to work on him, begin to open his eyes, begin to do some things in this man to help him to understand. There's, there's this three, three piece sort of movement here that, that happens within this chapter before this man's life. This, this, these moments of, of, uh, understanding and revelation coming upon him and his response to it. Because our response really matters. You know, the response that we give to what the Lord is doing to us, really carries a lot of weight. The Lord can chase after us. The Lord can follow us. But if we don't want to be found, we can stay lost. Right? So Jesus comes and he says, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. He's, for, he's foretelling um, the cross, his death. And he says, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And so he's contrasting himself from the realities of what's going on in the world as, as they see it, right? There's a lot of darkness in the world. There's a lot of chaos in the world. And what Christ comes is he brings light. He brings order to things. And at, at the beginning of, of the book of John, we, we read that the first verse was, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the word was God. 
And John really takes a, takes a lot of pains to develop the fullness of the deity of Christ. That Christ is not just this, this man who did good things, but he was a fully man, fully God personhood who came to earth for us, who came to earth as an expression of love from, from our Father, from Yahweh. And so as he was, as he's on earth, he, he, he does the works of the Father because that's bringing light into the world. When we think back in Genesis of how God created things and what it was before was just water, it was chaos. A lot of, um, old, uh, old writings from that time from, um, you know, from that era, Canaanite writings would talk about the ocean as being a, an example of evil as, as, as a sort of, um, uh, manifestation of chaos. And, and what, what, what the book of Genesis did was establish God as one who brings created order to chaos, to this, this big thing, this big ocean that no one can tame, but the Lord can tame. And so in Genesis, we see how God established through seven days, figuratively or metaphorically, depending how you look at it, but established through seven days a created order to things, that there be light, that there be birds, all, all of these things that he created, and, that, and he created men, man and woman, at the same time. And, and with Jesus, what Jesus is doing now, and all of the works that he's doing is he's bringing order, he's showing the light, he's doing exactly what his father did in Genesis by bringing new creation to a world of chaos, a world that has forgotten the Lord, a world that has run away from the Lord, and he is restoring things to how they should be. And that's all the works that the Lord is doing. And so he, he does this work in this blind man. He says, after he said this, he spat on the ground. This is Jesus. He made clay with the spittle and applied the clay to the blind man's eyes. And in verse 7, it says, he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So the blind man went away and washed and came back seeing. And this is, this is obviously an example of this new creation. This, this man was new after, after he did this. Jesus spit in the ground. He made some mud and he threw it on the guy's eyes. And he gave him, he gave him a, a command. Go to Siloam, which is translated sent. Wash your eyes and you'll see your healing. And I wonder what that guy was thinking. He, 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 he probably was a part of the synagogue at the time because you couldn't, be a part of community if you weren't a part of the synagogue. So he, 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 he had heard stories about Yahweh. He had heard stories about the Torah. But what was his relationship with the Lord? And then, too, you have this man, Jesus, who's claiming to be the Messiah at the time. And, and people are trying to figure out, do I trust him? Do I believe him? Is what he is saying is true? And he's going around doing all of these miracles. So I wonder if the blind man had heard that. Did he hear these stories and think, oh, well, maybe this is my chance? Or did he not hear these stories because they didn't have Twitter at the time? And there was no way for him to really get that real-time, you know, connection of all the news all around the world. So he may not have known anything, too. And this may have just been some weird guy putting mud on his eyes. And, and, and when, when Jesus says, go wash in the pool, the guy's like, okay, well, I got it anyway because you got mud on my eyes. And he goes and he washes them off, and then all of a sudden he can see. Imagine, imagine how, how that man would feel. 
having, having experienced this miracle, having experienced this new creation of himself. And he didn't understand what happened. God sent him away to the pool called Sent to experience his miracle. And God could have healed him immediately, right? There's other instances of God just healing people right as they are without having to do anything. He pulls somebody up and then they walk. But yet here he gave this blind man a task. And so why do you think he did that? Why do you think this man had to go somewhere to get his healing? What did the mud do? Was the mud anything special? There's nothing special about the mud. I don't think anything special about Jesus' spit or the pool, right? But the special thing was the man's obedience. The man could have just wiped off the mud from his eyes and still been blind for the rest of his life. He could have just sat back and said, well, God, I know, I know you know what's wrong anyway, so I'm just going to let you work, and I ain't going to take this extra step to do it. That's how, that's how we act you know, often. But yet he, he, took the, he took the steps to get up and then go walk to the pool of Siloam and to actually wash it off. And he found his miracle there. And it's that obedience that the Lord is after, this obedience. It's just why we do these baptisms too, because it's an, it's an act of obedience to the Lord. It's a public proclamation of our understanding of the Lord and, and our wanting to publicly affirm the Lord is actually Lord of my life and I'm going to follow him. But it's also an act of obedience that the Lord blesses. And all throughout the Old Testament, the, the main problem with Israel, the main problem with Judah too later on, is that they were not obedient to the Lord. The Lord kept on pouring out his love over and over again, saying, just listen to me, just, just be in relationship with me and, and you'll prosper. We'll have a relationship and I'll protect you. And, and Israel was just kept on looking to other nations, looking to other gods, saying, no, you know, hearing from Yahweh saying, no, you, I don't think you can, but, but this God can. Or this nation over here, Egypt, they can help us. They got a lot of chariots. And all of that was an act of disobedience because it was Israel placing its trust in something other than Yahweh, other than the Lord. And over and over, their trust in these false things led to further pain, led to further degradation of the culture and of the morals of the people, that the Lord had to step in and allow consequences to come. And Israel was captured by Assyria. hundred years later, Judah, the remnant, was captured by Babylon. And so they experienced the consequences of disobedience. They experienced the consequences of of running away from the Lord when the Lord just wanted to love them. And, and in the same way, us today, we, we, we run through the same thing. The Lord is always pouring out his love on us and, and telling us he, how much he loves us and how much he wants us to, to listen to him because his way is the better way. But we look to other things. We look to drugs. We look to other people. We look to power. We look to money. We look to that cool truck, you know, whatever it is. We look to these other things and say, no, my, my happiness is over there. It's not up there. It's over there with, with this other stuff. God, you don't know what you're talking about. Thanks for sharing, but I'm going to go after this. 
And in the same way, what happened with Israel is that God's going to reach a point to where he has to just back up and say, okay, but I'm here for you. You, you, you go do your thing. Experience it. There's going to be some consequences there. But I'm here for you when you want to come back. And, and, that, and that's the beauty of the Lord. That's the beauty of who Christ is. That's the beauty of the Father. And you see it all throughout the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. You know, I spoke about, in praying for Colleen, I spoke about Jeremiah. That was the Lord's heart for the people. The Lord loved Israel. He didn't want them to go through this, the, the pain of being conquered, the pain of death, the pain of forced assimilation into another nation. He didn't want any of that to happen, but at some point, he had to let go. He had to step back, and he had to, he had to say, well, this is your consequence for your disobedience. And then, and then whenever it happens to us, whenever we go through the discipline of the Lord, even though it's in love, we think, oh, God, you're, why are you punishing me? Why are you treating me like this? And, and, and we, we totally get this blindness about us in not knowing our own sins, not seeing how we went astray. And, and we get the self-righteousness built up in us. That God's just, God's just mean. He's just, he's just doing this because he can. God doesn't care about me. And, and these lies kind of just start settling into us. But yet when, when the, the light comes, when, when Jesus comes and brings his new creation to us, we, we experience this, this transition from being blind to seeing. In the same way that this man, in John 9, he experienced that transition by being obedient to the Lord. By going to this pool, he had the miracle happen, and all of a sudden he could see. And then everyone around him, they were like, is this the same guy? Is this the guy that we've seen on the corner begging for money who's been blind his whole life? He looks like him, but he can see now. Like, how does that happen? And so for this man, this new creation, it, 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 it spiked interest in other people. But it also spiked derision. Because some of those people went out and got the Pharisees, and the Pharisees came questioning the man, how, how were you healed? And they weren't interested in his healing. They weren't interested in him being a changed man. They were more interested in finding a way to catch Jesus in a sin of their system. And Jesus was really, he, he, he did a lot of this stuff on purpose. One, it was the Sabbath that, that he healed this man on. And two, he spit in the ground and, and he did a little work making the mud. And th th there's a whole list of 39 things that, that um, observant Jews can't do on the Sabbath. One of them is kneading and mixing things. So Jesus is obviously digging at, <laughs> digging at, at the system, digging at the people. In doing this, he, he, he added a work element to it to force this, this um, interaction. And so you have these, these Pharisees who come up to this man and say, well, you, you were healed by a sinner. This can't, be, this can't be right. And they're putting doubts in this man. And this man didn't really have an understanding of who Jesus was, really. He, he called him a prophet a little bit later. So he at least knew that because he knew the prophets could do some things like this because they were well connected with God. And so he, he had that understanding. Well, he was a prophet. And, and they keep on badgering him. They keep on badgering him over and over again. They go to his parents. And his parents say, and his parents are scared. His parents are fearful because 
The people know that if anyone were to accept Jesus as anything other than a sinner, then they would be put out of the synagogue, which meant they were put out of the community, which meant they didn't have a family anymore. They didn't have a support system anymore. And so when the Pharisees came up to the parents, they said, well, we know that's our son, and we know he used to be blind, but for how he can see now, it's, we don't know, you got to ask him. He's of age. And so they were acting out of fear. They didn't have a full understanding of the identity that Christ brings. They didn't have a full understanding of who they were as children of God. And so they, they said, well, I'm, I'm just not going to touch it. You got you to go deal with him. And then the Pharisees again go to, go to this blind man, or this, he's seeing now, though used to be blind man. And they, they keep on asking him and badgering him about it over and over. And in verse, verse, verse 25, the blind man responds with a simple, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And that's such a powerful statement right there. Because even though the man didn't know what happened or how it happened or even who really did it, he just knew the outcome of the miracle. And another aspect of it is that he knew, he knew a miracle happened and he wasn't going to be afraid of what other people came and said to him. He didn't know the fullness of, of what it meant to be in relationship with the Lord, in relationship with Christ. But he knew that his testimony, he knew that he was once blind, but now he sees, and that was amazing enough. And so what he did was say, well... I don't know what happened, but I know what happened, and you guys can be mad all you want, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe this guy, because he did something for me. And so with the parents and with this, with this man, we see two ways of, of interacting with, with people when it comes to our testimony, and two ways of viewing ourselves, and, and two ways of really understanding our identity. The parents didn't understand their identity and were fearful. They tried to get out of the situation. They didn't want to face it head on. The man still didn't understand the situation, but at the same time, he wasn't afraid. He knew what the Lord did for him, and he was just going to go run on with that. He didn't care what was going to come his way. No matter the opposition that came, he was strong. He was steadfast. He knew, he knew who he was because he knew what happened. He knew he was blind, but now he sees. And so there's, there's two ways of living. And sometimes, you know, we, 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 can, we can live in both realities at the same time. We can have this weakness in our identity in some areas. And we can have a strength in our identity in other areas. Things that don't bother us. And then things that really do bother us. But how we respond to it is our, our sort of reaction to the Lord. Being blind and seeing is something the Lord does to us. But then we got to still take action afterwards to one, proclaim the miracle, but also to continue seeing and seeing correctly. So for myself, a couple examples of, of being strong in identity and then being weak in identity. One thing I've always been strong in identity about is, is, is this, this concept of manliness. You know, this is something that a lot of men deal with. Is that, am I really a man? Do I, do I need a bigger truck? I need, I, I, I need more power tools or something. I, and you have these other guys saying, well, if you don't know how to shoot an AK-47, I don't know about your manhood. 
Right? You have all this stuff. And even churches dig into this too and say, come be a part of our men's group. And there's like all kinds of military jets flying over in the video. And, and you got to be a man. You got to be strong. You got to lift weights. You got to love trucks. And it, it's always been something that has never bothered me. I've never felt the need to prove myself. You know, oftentimes people will say, well, you, you know, you, you need your hands to be greasy. You need to have been working on something. You need to have calluses on them. You got calluses, Jared? You need to have calluses so you can be a man just like Jared. The epitome of manhood right there. And another man is like, you, you need to be missing fingernails because of the hard work you're doing. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It might just mean you're bad at your job. But you, you're supposed to be missing fingernails. I said last night, too, that I, coincidentally, I'm missing a, a, a chunk of my fingernail from this finger. But it's not from doing work. I, I went a little too aggressively for a bag of chips in the pantry. And I caught it right on the top shelf. You know, just being tall, it's hard to get things on the lower shelf. And so I caught it and it took a big chunk off. But I'm a man. Right? And I remember playing football and, you know, like competitive stuff. It's, it's something that I can be competitive at times, but I'm like, eh, I don't care. And playing football, they, they want you to be competitive. They want you to go out and kill the other team. And my coaches would get so mad at me that they'd be yelling at me, they'd be cussing at me, they'd be calling me names and pushing me, trying to get me to get angry. And I, I'm just like, okay, I get it. And so, you know, I, I do what I do, I'll, I'll block or whatever, but you don't got to be mean to me about it, right? But it, it's, just, it's just this thing. And as a kid, it really, you know, like this whole manhood stuff really, really gets after you. But then too, on another level, so that's something I'm strong in, but then something I'm weak in, is that when we were up in Vermont and New Hampshire, like I said, we had spent time up there before. I did graduate school at a really nice college up there in, um, to, from 2015 to 17. And I loved that school. And so whenever we're up there, I want to go drive around and go be a part of it again. And so we, we went and drove around. And it was, it was a week or so before classes were starting. So all kinds of kids, were, you know, were getting their rooms ready, all that stuff. So it was a whole bunch of life at the school. And I didn't really want to leave the school, but I had to because I was done and there's nothing extra for me to do there. But once I was, when I, when I finished graduate school, I had in my mind that, okay, well, I'm done with ministry now. And I'm going to go on and work in academia or work in publishing or work as a writer. I, I, I had this stuff in my head, this kind of career that I wanted to take. Because I had been involved in ministry ever since I graduated high school. I joined Youth with the Mission, started doing stuff with them, was put on as a leader, helped lead schools, helped teach, helped do all kinds of things with them. And, and I got to graduate school, I was in my mid-30s, and I was like, okay, well, that was a good phase, phase of my life. And I'm looking forward to this next phase of my life. But, but nothing happened for me in, in, in trying to get jobs and trying, trying to seek after that. I could have gone and done more schooling and be put in a whole lot more debt, but that was something I didn't really want to do. And so th doors weren't opening, doors weren't opening, and then we ended up back here in Albuquerque, and, and then as we're here, you know, we knew we would have a church here, but then this job position opened up for communications director here at the church. And I wasn't going to take it because I didn't want a ministry job again. And it wasn't really a ministry job, but I know how God works, right? 
And so, so I, I, you know, there's a little bit of, of sneakiness going on. So I wasn't really going to do it, but then I prayed about it. And, and I, told, I told the pastor, I told um, um, Ben Stewart, he was, he was the one um, hiring. So I told him at the time, I said, okay, well, I'll go home and pray about it, but I don't think it's going to work out. And then, and then I went home and actually prayed about it and then heard from the Lord and had to act on it, right? I didn't have to act on it, but if I didn't, it would have been terrible. And so, but, but it was one of those things of, okay, well, I'm going to do this job and I'm going to see where God takes me. And obviously, I mean, look at me now. I'm up here doing what God, what God has for me. But it wasn't what I originally planned. And so when I go back to that school and think about those plans and think about, because it wasn't a Christian school, and, and, you know, I did well there. The professors liked me. Every, everyone had, had, I excelled. I got an award for my thesis. I, so much stuff was going on for me at this time that I thought I was going to be headed off in this other direction. And so sometimes when, when, when I go to that school, I feel like a failure. Or I get these ideas of, well, what did you really accomplish? Why did you even come to school here? And then at the same time, every, every year in June during commencement, and I see videos of commencement or see them getting ready for commencement, I get that same feeling again. That same sort of weakness of, well, what did you really accomplish? But it's something that I've gotten to the point now to where I don't fully accept it. I, I, I can see it, I can capture it, and I can give it to the Lord and say, this isn't, this isn't my identity. All of this stuff is not my identity. All this stuff about me being a failure, that's not true. Because I, I am where the Lord has me. I'm doing what the Lord wants me to do. Even though it's a little bit different than what I thought, the Lord still wanted me to do this. And so with this blind man, you see that he, had, he carries that sort of sense that no matter what people say about him, no matter what people try to do to hurt his identity, he doesn't let it affect him. Because he's strong in that identity. His parents had the, the opposite. His parents were a little weak in their identity. In John 9.38... Jesus comes back to, to this man because he, he hears that this man got put out of the synagogue. So Jesus comes back and he finds this man and, and he reveals himself to, to this man as, as Jesus, as Lord, and as, as the one who, who healed him because the man didn't see him the first time. And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and he is the one who was talking to you, talking about the Son of Man, the this, this Savior of the world, this one who healed him. And in verse 38, the blind man says, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. So that was the culmination of everything that happened. That was the culmination of the healing, the culmination of this man's identity, this culmination of, of what the Lord was doing in this man and his response to the Lord. Because we're all required to make a response in a relationship we need to make responses. We need to be active. It can't be a passive relationship. I can't be passive in my, my relationship with my wife because then we wouldn't have a relationship. With the Lord, it's the same thing. When we think about God, when we think about Yahweh, sometimes we, it seems like this abstract idea of this concept somewhere out there, this concept that maybe has something to do with us, maybe doesn't, I don't know. But all throughout the Bible... 
how, how the prophets speak of Yahweh, how we see Jesus working, how we see the Holy Spirit work. We see that these are three in one, and they are beings, they are people, they are things that we can have a relationship with. And that's what the Lord is calling us to over and over again. Come, be with me, so I can be with you. Because the Lord still is just, right? He's righteous. He's holy. And so if we're not holy, if, we, if we're stuck in all the other junk, then we can't fully be with the Lord. We've got to allow Christ to come into our lives. We've got to allow, you know, what we did with um, communion and remembering the blood of Christ coming over us, washing us, cleansing us, making us new, so that we can enter into that relationship with the Lord. So I'll end with a few questions and one more story. When this man gave his belief in the Lord, Lord, I believe, he was making a firm commitment because he had his questions answered. But he didn't always have, I shouldn't say he had all of his questions answered because not all of them were answered, but he knew enough. He knew his testimony. And he knew that that was strong enough for him that even though he didn't know how he was healed, he just knew that he was healed. He knew he was once blind and now he sees. And that was enough. And the Pharisees came to him with all this other stuff. And it's the same thing for us today. When we go out there, we get a lot of, we get bombarded with ideas. Is Jesus who we really said he is? Was Jesus a real man? Was he a figment of our imagination? Was he just something that people made up for a story? Is Jesus really God? And we get bombarded with those, and we feel like we have to have a response. We have to have a valid comeback for them all the time. But the reality is we don't. We don't have to have an intellectual response, even though it's good to have something ready you know, at the time to talk about it, to engage in conversation with people who are like that. But ultimately, if, if it freaks you out that people are coming at you and coming at your identity with stuff like that, you can just be like this man who says that though I was blind... Now I see. Though I was addicted, now I'm free. Whatever it was in your past that you're no longer living, you have that testimony to give. So we have to believe who Je that Jesus is who he says he is. Second thing to think about is, are we blind? What's blinding us? Do we feel like we're seeing? Later on, the Pharisees come up to Jesus because they hear this man t talking to Jesus, and Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. And the Pharisees heard him and said, We're not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to him, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. So with the Pharisees asking, Are we blind? It wasn't necessarily an honest question. You know, they were being defensive, we were responding to the Lord. But we can sometimes find ourselves getting into that point of becoming blinded again by things in our culture, by things that we, we allow to, to happen in our lives. It can happen with addictions, right? You know, we can become re-addicted and then it becomes a, a problem to be able to see reality once you are addicted. It can also come in the form of various forms of idolatry, looking to money, wealth, power. In our age, it can come through political ideology, being so beholden to one side, to the far left, to the far right, 
to where it makes you think and see people as an enemy, to see people as less than who they are, less than children, less than people who God loves, less than God's creation. If you find yourself hating people and not being able to express love to people, then that's a blindness. Because that's one thing Jesus fully fully addressed, said, love your enemies. So we have no, no real rope to hate. We don't have a freedom to hate. The final question is, how is God working and what is our response to the Lord? When we come to Jesus and we think about the Lord, we touched on that at the beginning of, 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 of this teaching, is that how do we see the Lord? Does the Lord just want to punish us all the time or is the Lord one who is constantly waiting to accept us with open arms? How is the Lord working in our lives? Is the Lord distant or is the Lord here? Because the Lord, the Lord is constantly telling us over and over again that he's here, he's, he's there with the people, but sometimes people don't believe that. Sometimes people want to push, push the concept of a God away because they think, well... God's, you know, like a deist thinking, well, God's just out there. He, he started things, but he's not paying any attention to us. You know, why should he pay attention to me? And so that's all a distortion, right? It's all a distortion of what God is doing in our lives. Because we try to see God as somewhere distant. So we need to fully see. We need to fully react. We need to fully understand. Are we blind in how we see how the Lord works in our lives? Do we see Christ as living inside of us? Do we see the Holy Spirit working and moving in us? Or do we see God as separate from us? As something to confront? I'll finish with this story. And I'll, I'll tell this story before I tell people to stand. Megan told me last night, because I had people stand before I told the story. And then she said, you did the classic preacher thing where you had people stand for 10 minutes as you, as you finished. <clears throat> so that, that's where I get all my critiques about my sermons and how to be better at life. Um, So in thinking about all these questions and in thinking about the Lord on Friday was was my wife's birthday. And then at the end, we, you know, we had dinner, we had cake and the kids ate cake. And they, you know, I have a seven and nine year old, a boy and a girl. And they were running all over the house, running upstairs. They were wild, being loud. They're slamming doors, running around. And I hate when I hear the doors slamming. Because I can just think of mangled fingers <laughs> in hospital visits. And I don't want that to happen, so I, I'm constantly telling them over and over again, stop playing with the doors. And so this was another chance. So I called them down, and they came down, and I gave them my whole spiel about, stop playing with the doors. I don't want you to hurt your fingers, all this stuff. And then I tell them, okay, you can go once I was done. And my daughter, she, as soon as I said, okay, you can go, she said, ugh, finally. And then she started walking up the stairs. And she's, she's got a lot of attitude, that little nine-year-old. And, <laughs> and so she, and Megan, my wife, has been dealing with this over and over again, too, so it gave me a chance to, to correct it. It gave me a chance to deal with it. So I called Rachel back down, and I asked her, what did you say? And she, she was honest. She's always honest, even in the face of trouble. That's what I love about her. She's always honest. I love honesty. So she was honest, and so I put her in timeout, let her sit there for a few minutes to think, right? <laughs> think about what she did wrong. And then I called her to me, and I, I told her, 
I was explaining to her, when you talk back to us, it's, it's disrespectful. It's mean. It's treating us like you don't love us. And I went through this whole, whole, whole spiel about that, too. And she was sitting there listening, nodding her head. And then once I was done, I said, okay, you can go up and play, play with your brother. And so she ran upstairs and ran in her room and just started bawling. And I was crying. And I always hate it, too, because I feel guilty now. Now that my daughter's crying, I didn't do anything wrong. But now all of a sudden, all the guilt and is coming on me. And so she's crying up there. I'm thinking, do I go up there and, you know, do I make, try to make things better? But it's like, there's no reason to. And so she does that for a good five minutes. And it's loud. You can hear it all throughout the house. We just kind of let her go. And, and then she it gets quiet up there. And then she comes down the stairs. She doesn't say a word to me. She comes up to me. I'm sitting on the couch. And she just hugs me. And she's squeezing me, you know, as she's hugging. She doesn't say anything. And I tell her, I love you. And she doesn't respond. She just lets go after a big, long hug and goes up and plays. And in, in, in this Bible study that we're doing, we're, we're, we're going through a year. I and people from this church, and you guys can always sign up whenever you want. Bible in one year. We're doing it here. You get it through emails. But we're going through this Bible study, and we're in Lamentations. And Lamentations is this lament. It's this cry of pain that Israel is, is given because they have been conquered and Babylon has come in and destroyed them because of their consequences. And so we're at this point now where Judah has been totally conquered. Babylon has come in and killed and brought destruction. And so this whole lament is, is the remnants of Judah's response to the Lord saying, I know I was wrong. We were wrong in what we did. And, and we know why you had to do this. We know why you had to, had to give us the consequences. They were owning up to it. And, but all throughout, they're also entering into prayer. They're also entering into praise and saying, Lord, we, we, we want you again. We want to come back to you. And it's like they're going up to Yahweh and, and just giving them that hug, just like my daughter gave me, and hugging them, hugging Yahweh. And, and saying, I'm sorry, 